Well, it's, it's good to be here, uh, good to, to worship with you, and it's, it's a privilege to share with you this morning. It's a church I'm thankful for. I've recommended to others. Um, we have some of our former members. I see Kenji and Leanne here. I'm still praying that they come back to Torrens, but until then, we're glad they're here with you. Um, love Pastors Dan and Dave. Good to see Josh again. They're uh, really an encouragement to me, and, and so it's a blessing to be here. And let's be honest, preaching in Hawaii is not like a bad gig. I mean, if you're going to get to preach somewhere, I know for you, you live here, but for the rest of us, it is paradise, right? In fact, it's so good that sometimes I'm embarrassed to tell people that I'm going to preach here, right? Because then, like in the past, when I've told people, I'll, I'll get this, oh, thank you for loving Jesus. You know, it's like, oh, you're such a servant. It's like watching Jesus walk among us. So I get a lot of sarcasm. In fact, the last couple of days, I was preaching at a conference in Riverside, and I don't know if you know what if you haven't known Riverside, is think of, think of Hawaii and then think of the exact opposite, okay? It's, it's literally in the desert. And, and so I couldn't stay to hear a friend of mine preach on the last day because I was coming here, and I didn't even tell him where I was going, right? Because, like, you know, he's, he's being John the Baptist. He's preaching in the desert, and I'm coming here to eat my weight and shave ice and poke. So um, good to be here. Uh, also a little embarrassed to be here, but um, thankful that you would have me and my family. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 13. This morning, we are going to, uh, I just want to offer a simple encouragement to, to love well. Um, it's probably not earth-shattering, and yet it's vital to us to consider, because on one hand, it's the most, uh, one of the most important things that we do, right? It's the second greatest command, no less. And yet, it's also one of the most difficult things we do, right? Our ability to, to love affects every relationship we're in, and the struggle to love is one of the most painful things we experience as Christians. But what this means is that if we, we love well, our, our relationships won't just be changed, but our, our lives will be changed. And so let me begin by asking you this question. How many times have you said, or at least thought, it's not fair? I, I think all of us are familiar with that idea. We felt it. You have, if you've had kids, you, you've definitely heard it. I mean, imagine a, a child got a smaller piece of dessert than their siblings. Like, has ever in the history of the world uh, one of them said, Mother, that is so great that you gave them a bigger piece. Like, I'm just so thankful. It brings joy to my heart. Right? All, all of us struggle when things don't seem to be fair. It's, it's the idea that something isn't right because it's not equal. There, there's a lopsidedness to some interaction or there's an inequity involved. And again, we've all felt it and most often we despise it. Maybe even now you're, you're wrestling through a situation or even a whole relationship that seems unfair. Maybe it's work where you're struggling under some sort of injustice. You were passed over a promotion. You, uh, coworkers treating you poorly. A boss doesn't appreciate you. Maybe it's a friendship where you feel like you've been faithful and the other person keeps failing. Maybe they seem to give less effort. They've broken confidence. They've offered hurtful words. They spoke about you behind your back. Maybe it's a relationship with your in-laws or a situation on your, uh, your kid's sports team or something with a roommate. Or what about the biggest example, marriage? I'm guessing if you're married, there at some point or another you felt like things were unfair. Maybe that's how you feel right now. You did more, you loved better, you forgave quicker, you worked harder while the other person broke your trust or seemed so unkind or spoke unkindly or was so uh, lazy. And what makes it especially difficult to, to have a clear understanding of it all is that our culture preaches the idea of fairness and equity, right? Relationships are meant to be 50-50, give and take. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. They're, they're supposed to be about compromise and balance. As a side note, when I preached this at Lighthouse, my my then nine-year-old son literally asked me to scratch his back. And I said, okay, but are you going to scratch mine? He said, no. 
He said, relationships aren't supposed to be 50-50. You should just scratch my back, which means he heard the sermon and missed the point of the sermon. But as Christians, if we're honest, though things seem a bit off about the idea of 50-50, we long for it. Uh, we don't want to give more than we receive, right? right? None of you are complaining because another person loves you so well. No one comes to our counseling ministry at Lighthouse because they're, they're having trouble because someone's just serving them too much. We, we long for fairness. But consider this, and this is really important. Fair isn't actually the goal of Christian relationships. Right? Fairness is a false baseline for our inactions. It's a worldly standard that draws our gaze inward rather than upward and outward where it's meant to be. In other words, fairness isn't really loving at all. It's just our culture's counterfeit, masquerading as love, but it's really just selfishness in disguise. In the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus places before us a picture of love that was inherently unfair. A love that was anything but a 50-50 enterprise, and it was that kind of love that he calls us to. Understand a Christian's love is unique from the world specifically because of its humble, sacrificial, unfair nature. And that gives us our key idea for this morning. Christian love, by its very nature, is the pursuit of what is unfair. Okay? Now, one caveat before we dive into this. In speaking of unfair relationships, I'm not speaking about fairness in totality or about being indifferent to injustice. In other words, we should hate injustice because the Bible hates injustice. If you were to hear of someone being abused or a coworker being taken advantage of or you saw racial bias, it would be right to fight against those things. Right? So, for example, abuse in any form is wrong and needs to be dealt with. The unfairness in this passage that it speaks about is really about our personal decisions that we make that bring about inequity in our relationships. In other words, we want to make it our goal to love much more than we're loved, to serve much more than we're served. We want our personal relationships to be unequal in the sense that we have loved so faithfully, so perseveringly, so humbly that they are seemingly unfair. And what this means is that while we fight against injustice in other people's lives, in a sense, we pursue it in our own. With that, let me read your story. It's, it's a well-known one. Uh, because of time, we can't go over the whole thing, but let me read to you the heart of the story. John 13, verses 3 through 5. It says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured a water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel, the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, well, this is what we're going to see is how we can pursue unfair relationships by considering two ways to do this. We're going to recognize and fight our lack of love, and we're going to pursue a sacrificial, unfair, Christ-like love. And as we do this, I want to encourage you to think of someone you're struggling to love um, and see how God's work speaks to you. If there's a person next to you, don't look at them like eyes here, just for like, you don't want to... But just think about that person. But here's the first point. We must recognize and fight our lack of love. Often when, when you read a book or watch a movie, have you, do you try to figure out who the bad guy is? Like who's the enemy? I mean, sometimes it's obvious, but other times we don't know. My wife and I watched a movie recently. It was a period piece. Could not have been more simple and pleasant. Very low stakes, no action, not even a romance. But then I see this actor coming on the screen and I'm like, there's a 100% chance he's the bad guy. Because every movie I've seen, he's the bad guy. For those of you who are younger, let's just say he's literally in the house of Slytherin. Okay, so that's who he is. So I'm, I'm just waiting to see what he does. Because he's, he's acting all nice. He's acting like he's friendly. And that's such a common movie trope, right? You know, they're, they're nice, and then they reveal themselves. And you know what he ended up being? 
a really good friend. And I was like so disappointed. I was like, oh man, I wish he'd try to take over the world. But I really realized I watched the whole movie and didn't realize who the enemy was. When it comes to love, we often think the enemy are people who are difficult to love, and yet biblically, the enemy is always the sin in our own hearts that stops us from loving. Let's look at our text. Our story is truly a picture of love. Apart from the cross, it's one of the greatest examples we have in Scripture. It is so significant that later in the passage, Jesus establishes a new commandment from it because it's meant to become the model of Christian love. Um, But though the picture is one of love, the context is one of selfishness. And I think that's really important to understand. Jesus isn't offering some random lesson on love. He's speaking directly to the selfishness of the disciples. And we see this in the Luke account um, in that this arose right after an argument as to who was the greatest. Okay, so so think about this. After three years of intense discipleship, of witnessing Jesus' love, of hearing him, this is the God-men, teach and say things like, the last shall be first— And on the night before, he would be crucified and literally suffer hell in their place. They're arguing who is the greatest. Not only that, but Jesus washes their feet because no one else is willing to do it. And I don't think they were unwilling to wash his feet. They were just unwilling to wash one another's feet. So again, though the lesson is one of love, the situation itself is one of selfishness. And and that being said, I think it's easy to remove ourselves from the story. On, On one hand, we think, I would never have done that. I would totally wash everyone's feet. Or we just kind of see it as a mild encouragement to love a little better. But I think neither of these attitudes approach Scripture with the humility necessary for true change. We have to understand that until we recognize our own lack of love and selfishness, we will not grow in love. So a couple of truths to to help us recognize our, our selfishness. First, understand that our sin blinds us to our own sin. Does that make sense? I mean, even as you weigh the scales of love in your relationships— Understand that our hearts are not the best measuring system because they are clouded by sin. It's like a computer virus or a computer with a virus. Our hearts are flawed by our own depravity, and so we're not great judges of ourselves and others. When I counsel people, um, people feel they have such a clear understanding of the situation. So they'll say things like, it's not fair that they or they do or they don't do this. And they are absolutely convinced that their assessment is true, but sin clouds that. And the point being, don't assume your evaluation of yourself is perfect, and definitely don't assume your evaluation of another person is perfect. In other words, as you consider the person you're struggling to love, don't assume your assessment is 100% correct. You're likely missing things. That's what sin does. And second, sin means that we will justify our sin. In fact, as crazy as it sounds, we'll use the concept of fairness to justify our unfairness. Because in other words, we're essentially saying this, because you treated me unfairly, it's fair that I treat you unfairly. And an idea that we talk a lot about Lighthouse is the wrong belief that's really detrimental to relationships, and yet a lot of people hold to it. It's the idea that your sin makes my sin not a sin. In other words, if you sin against me, then my sin is justified. If you yell at me, I can yell back. If you're unkind or sarcastic or lazy or selfish, I'm justified in my anger or my unkindness. So take a moment and consider that. We actually use the concept of righteousness to justify our unrighteousness. We use fairness to justify our own fairness. And the point being, in our sin, we'll justify our sin. But do you understand what we're saying when we don't love? We're basically saying we're greater than Jesus. Now, we would never say that out loud. None of you would say that. But notice after Jesus washes their feet, what does he say in verses 14 and 16? 
He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A servant is not greater than his master. Do you hear his argument? If he loves, then so should they, because they were much less than him. It's pretty straightforward logic, but consider the implication. If I refuse to love, then I'm saying, hey, serving's okay for Jesus, but not for me. In other words, I'm a servant who's actually greater than my master. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? Right? It's, as ugly as it is, it's, it's you, it, it just tells you the nature of sin. Understand what sin does. It takes the love that is meant to be directed upward towards God and then overflow outward towards others, and it bends itself inward until we become the greatest object of our own affections. That's the nature of sin. So again, we must not remove ourselves from the story. In fact, Jesus brings us into the story when he says this in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The point being, we're not mere observers in the story. This is our story. It's a picture of the selfishness that we are too familiar with, and it's a picture of the love that Jesus is calling to. Now with this, let me offer a challenge. Be committed to growing in love, despite what anyone else in your life does. In other words, don't, don't, listen, don't think of this message as something that you hope someone else is listening to. You might even be thinking about sending this message to someone that you know needs to love a little better. And by that, you likely mean love you a little bit better. Or... But before you do that, before you awkwardly look over at your husband to see if he's really paying attention, just stop and just, just consider your own life. The power of God's truth will be lost on you if you're worried about if other people are hearing it. Believe this is speaking to you. Take time. Dwell on this truth that it holds. Now, with this in mind, just two simple applications. First, to pursue humility, we should begin with repentance. This is hard because some of you actually have loved well, and you are in what we might consider unfair relationships. So to ask you to repent for your lack of love seems a bit, well, unfair. But if you want to change, this is where it starts. You must repent for the anger you've displayed, for the bitterness you feel, for the self-righteousness that exists, for the discontentment in your heart, even if it's much less than the other person. Right? Change starts from turning from sin to Christ, and so you have to humbly repent and ask forgiveness for not only acting like you're better than others, but really acting like you're better than Christ. Again, that's the essence of a lack of love, the bold declaration that we're better than Christ. Beyond repentance, second, to pursue humility, constantly gaze at Christ. Jesus gives us this example, and then he tells us, be like him. In other words, Jesus is saying, look at me, like love like me. Too often we're looking at others and what they're doing or not doing. All the ways they've wronged us, their sharp words, their lack of help, their sins and their failures. And then we think about how much we do. Again, keeping that mental ledger as to all the ways that we serve in love and how gracious and kind we've been, and it just fuels our pride and our self-righteousness. I mean, no one likes to think they're self-righteous, but that, that's what we do when we think about how good we are and how wrong other people are. So instead of fueling our pride, we must fuel our faith in Christ. I remember one time I was counseling a couple, and um, I met with the husband first and could not have seemed like a nicer guy. And he, she shares about difficulties with his wife, and so I explained to him the importance of repentance. And um, again, he, he just he couldn't get it, and it just took months because he was refusing to acknowledge his role in this, even though he'd been sinned against as well. Finally, he comes to that point, and he's in a good place, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to separately meet with the wife, me and, and one of the uh, ladies from our church. We're going to meet with her and talk with her first, and um, when she came in, she seemed so hard to the gospel, so hard to Christ. 
Uh, but we talked, and in my mind, thinking this is going to take a long time because if her husband took this long, but I, some of the same things, and I don't even know why we talked about repentance in the first uh, meeting because usually I wouldn't, I would kind of wait on that. You don't lead with repentance. But we ended up there, and, and uh, she felt the conviction to hold the Holy Spirit, and she repented um, that week. Like, and then we, she came back. She was a changed woman. And so we met for like two or three weeks before we got together with the husband before to kind of bring about reconciliation. But that just tells you the power of repentance and, and what it means to turn to Christ. Okay, second idea, we must pursue a sacrificial, unfair, Christ-like love. I feel like lately, sacrificial love is the story of my wife's life. Uh, last summer, I had open-heart surgery to repair a heart defect that I was born with, but because of various complications, my sternum hasn't fused. And what it means, I'm not supposed to lift heavy weights or things like that, and, um, and so she has to do a lot of things. Um, for example, we were on a trip in the fall, and I couldn't carry any bags. It was just me and her. We're in the airport. So imagine us walking through the airport. She has a big backpack on. She's carrying two bags, um, and I had a fanny pack. And it was like, like in my defense, it was like a pretty good-sized fanny pack. It's like my wallet and chapstick and things like that. But um, it just looks horrible. And then, of course, we get on the plane, and this petite lady looks at me, and she says, can you help me put my bag up? And my wife says, I, I, I can do it. You know? And it's like, you just feel like, yeah, my wife will take care of it. You know, Don't worry about that. Um, that's, when we think about sacrificial love, those are the kind of things to come to mind. But as, as, as we continue our passage, remember that this wasn't just an object lesson. Of course, Jesus loved his disciples. Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. With that, listen again to verses 4 and 5 and consider Christ's love. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So having grown up in the church, I've heard this story many times. And the thing that has always stood out to me was how disgusting this job must have been. Right? My, my school, Sunday school teachers would always emphasize not just the dirt, but because how there's a lot of animals. This had been especially gross, like manure gross. It was a job only the lowliest of servants would do. But think about it. Jesus could have done a lot of things to demonstrate love. He could have paid for the meal. Right? He could have cooked the meal, he could have cleaned up afterwards. But by washing their feet, it's kind of this stunning picture of humble love. And the application is obvious because Jesus himself will, will spell out later in the passage. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So simply put, we are to humbly and sacrificially love like Jesus but though the lesson is simple enough, love one another, let me offer three thing, ideas that kind of deepen and challenge our understanding of love that Jesus is calling us to. We'll spend most of the time on the third idea, but first, the love was again a response to selfishness. I already pointed this out, but the context of the situation was Jesus loving those who were selfish, right? Often our favorite relationships are people who are easy to love, friends who are faithful, spouses who are helpful, kids and grandkids who are thankful, coworkers who are so gracious, but where we struggle is when things are not like that. Okay, so this is already getting more difficult because I, I, if you're thinking, well, obviously Jesus understands if I don't love that person, realize this story is exactly about Jesus calling you to love that person, right? That person who hurts you deeply, that person who differs with you on politics, that person who is ungrateful, that person who failed you. In fact, one of the most shocking parts of this story is that Jesus washes the feet of Judas, so yeah, your, your spouse may be pretty lousy, but can you honestly say they are Judas lousy? 
Like, I've done a lot of marriage counseling, and I've never had a wife describe her husband and say, hey, you know, like, think Judas, but like really worse, right? No one says that. Who are you having trouble loving? Are they worse than Judas? The point being, this is a call to love and the, to love the sinful and the selfish. Second, the love was costly. It was an even humiliating act of service. I think all of us have types of service that we actually enjoy, but there are, different way, there are definitely ways we don't love to serve. The love displayed in our story was not the fun kind of love. It was not about doing what we enjoy or our, using our gifts or finding our wheelhouse. It was dirty. It was disgusting. It was sacrificial. It was selfless. So again, it, it gets harder. Jesus wasn't simply saying, find little ways to be kind. He was saying, do the worst of it. So think about it this way. What, what in your relationship is the foot washing activities? What do you hate to do? Or maybe more importantly, what, do the, what does the other person hate to do? That's what Jesus is calling you to do. Now, as tough as that is, it's this third one where I think most of us get stuck again. And the third one is, this love was inherently unfair. Again, it's not quid pro quo. It's not 50-50. Jesus would have been more than justified to stop and stand up and say, this is not fair. I mean, if for me, I totally would have pulled the king of the universe card. And it was more than it was just a disgusting job. And it was more than the fact that he was washing feet while others weren't. It was that he was the creator washing the feet of his creation. And if that wasn't enough of an equity, remember, it wasn't as if the disciples would pay him back. Again, this wasn't give and take. In fact, the very next day, Jesus would take his humble, sacrificial, unfair love a step further, and then he would go to the cross and die for their sins. As Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My point being that, that the love Jesus demonstrates calls and calls us to is an unfair love. Isn't this difficult? I mean, so different than how we often understand love. The idea of giving and not getting just grates against our sinful hearts. But really, this is not only biblical truth, but it's simple logic. If there is no sacrifice in our love, then it's simply a transaction. Right? That's what a fair relationship is. It's a well-balanced transaction. I mean, if I, uh, I go into Leonard's, I buy some malasados, um, hypothetically, my, my family already did this morning, um, and, and, and it costs $10, and I pay $10, would anyone say, Leonard, I'm sure Leonard's not working here, well, Leonard is so loving. He just gave Kim malasadas, and all he had to do was pay him $10. No, that's, that's a transaction the, the owner gave because he got. No one's writing books or, or making movies about that kind of love because it's not love. Now, if I'm homeless and I, I go in there and the owner just gives it to me for free, that would be loving, right? No repayment, no advertising benefit. In fact, it might even annoy the regular customers. So to pursue fair relationships is to not pursue loving relationships. That's just to pursue an equitable transaction. You're willing to give as long as you feel like you have received. And too often, that's kind of our understanding of relationships. They're just emotional business deals where love is the currency. And understand, and I wish we had more time for this, but Jesus points out the same thing. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 32, he says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, Jesus was saying the sinful disposition of the, self is to, uh, disposition of the heart is to make love a transaction. Rob Green put it this way in Tying the Knot. It's one of the premarital counseling books we use at Lighthouse. He says, if your definition of love is little more than the warm fuzzies, physical attraction, and the ability to have fun together, 
your relationship may demonstrate not how much you love the other person, but how much you each love yourself. What you have found is a person who helps you love you better than anyone else has, and that's a sobering and scary thought. So where does this leave us? With the challenging reality that if we're going to love well, we must pursue unfair relationships. We must really be truly, truly willing to sacrifice. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, it's to love expecting nothing in return. This means loving those in-laws who have not loved you well. It means rather than, than FOMO, that you weren't invited somewhere, being excited that they, for others and their joy. It means doing things around the house that you hate. It means being willing to not receive the credit you deserve at work. It means being thankful when someone has, doesn't recognize, someone, someone else is recognized in ministry. Or again, I think marriage is, is the big one. Is your heart discontent? Are you withholding love? Are you getting upset? Or have you become bitter because your marriage seems unfair? Have you considered that maybe if it's unfair, then you're actually loving well? Because the moment it is fair, it's likely the moment that you've tr truly stopped serving. So the question should we, we should ask really isn't, why is my marriage unfair? But it's, why isn't it unfair? Like, what more can I do to really pursue an unfair marriage? So please let the Holy Spirit bring his loving conviction to our hearts. We can't be content with transactional relationships. We must prefer, pursue unfair and yet loving relationships. Relationships that desire to give and not get, that hope to love, receiving nothing in return. We, we have to love like Christ, as it says in verse 1, who loved them till the end. Dan Orlin, in his book, Gently, Gentle and Lowly, describes it this way. Jesus does not love like us. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we're forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We, we love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. And so, brothers and sisters, we have to love like Jesus. Now, one more thing before I close. At this point, you may be thinking it's, it's not worth it. Like, love just seems like a chore. It's this Christian duty. It's another thing I'm supposed to do. But Jesus doesn't just tell us to love. In love, he tells us to love. Does that make sense? In other words, because he loves us, he wants so much for us, he wants us to know true blessing, he calls us to love. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. To me, this is one of those verses that you kind of rush over. Yeah, I know, it's, we're, we're blessed if we love, yada, yada, yada. It's almost like it's in quotes, like it's a blessing to love. I don't remember what we were talking about. But when my youngest son was pretty little, he, he asked me, and he said, Dad, why is it called special? And he used air quotes, and, and I... He didn't, you know, he was little. He didn't speak really well at the time. And I thought, oh, he just nailed that. So we talk, and, and then I said, all right, it's time for bed. I love you. And he said, I love you. And I'm like, really? I don't, maybe that's missing the point of air quotes. Um, and then my wife asked him later, he said, I don't know what it means. I just thought people do it. We can't air quote scripture here. It's not a blessing, right? It's really a blessing. And, and here's the thing. I think we, we all want to be blessed. That's not the issue. But we just don't really realize what true blessing is. Because to us, to be blessed would be to get what we want, that people would serve us, that things are equitable. To most of us, we'd call a fair relationship, that's a blessed relationship. Again, we don't mind giving as long as there's some getting. But just think then how easy it is for us to be unhappy and discontent in our relationships when we don't think we're getting what we deserve. Like when the, when the scales tip, when things seem unbalanced, all of a sudden we're unhappy. Why? Because now we're not being blessed. But Jesus is offering truer and better blessings, and yet it comes 
It specifically comes through loving sacrifice and the pursuit of unfair relationships. So it's a blessing that it's not about getting, but about giving. But in that, we experience the very goodness and the grace of God. I mean, James 4 says that while we can't earn grace, we can invite it through our humility. Remember, he says, God gives grace to the humble. That is a shocking, shockingly powerful promise in the Bible. We can't earn grace, otherwise it wouldn't be grace, but we get to invite it when we're humble. Now, I think there's many blessings that God offers through love, but one I really hope you get is that when we love well, we're blessed with the peace and joy of loving over being mired in frustration, anger, and bitterness. Does that make sense? I mean, for some of you, you feel like a relationship has been unfair, and so, so for you, the struggle, you, you struggle with you know, frustration or bitterness or whether, you know, anger, whether that's concealed or revealed. But what if instead of hating unfairness, you pursued unfairness? Like, what if you rejoiced in the chance to wash people's feet? What if you really did think that loving others is the, rec- is the recognition that you are not better than Christ? Like, that's my master. I'm going to love like he did. What if you didn't feel, have to feel as if you're always fighting to get what you deserve, but instead just rejoiced in the fact that according to Romans 1, the only thing you really deserve is hell and your promised heaven? What if you put away the mental ledger, you just threw it on the fire of the gospel, never to be uh, bothered by it again? What if you let your eyes be open to grace, to see with faith what others do and their sacrifice and love for you? What if you knew the happiness of serving others that is so much better than the happiness of being served by others? As Jesus himself said, it is better to give than to receive. That would be a blessing, right? Uh, one of the ways I've described our church is Everyone knows in church those guys and, and ladies that, that love well, and they're so happy, right? They're just, you, you see them, and they, they can't speak a bad word about someone. And then all of us know those people who they're always complaining. Someone's always wronged them. Someone's always late. Someone's always done, and they're so unhappy. We get to choose, in a sense, who, do we, who, who, who we're like. I think one big example of this might be forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard, but it's meant to bring peace and joy, right? Some of you are, are pretty bitter right now in your lack of forgiveness. But as Augustine famously said, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies, right? It, it just eats us up. And yet we feel justified in that, right? Because they did something wrong against you. But what if instead of dwelling on the unfairness of a situation, you did what, is, what, uh, what isn't fair, and then you forgave them? I mean, love means forgiving, even if we feel like we, they don't deserve it. Because that's what Jesus did. He forgave us even though we don't deserve it. And here's the thing. I'm not saying that you haven't been sinned against. An impartial person might weigh your case and declare you're right, they're wrong. But if you're waiting for them to earn your forgiveness, then you're not demonstrating the love of this passage. You're swimming in the world's fraudulent description of love and you're drowning in your own bitterness. But are you happy? Realize your joy isn't ultimately about the state of their actions, but the state of your heart. And so there is a better way and it's to forgive. It's the true essence of foot washing a love that is undeserved, a love that tips the scales in the other person's favor, a love that cannot be repaid. But in this love, there is joy. This is to know the blessing of, that Jesus talks about here. Some of you, your, your lives would maybe change dramatically if you were able to love through forgiveness. Let me close with this. I don't know if this sounds daunting or like it's too much, but I, I hope too you realize it's not the earth-shattering love that I'm asking you to do or that the Bible's asking you to do. 
It's not, I'm not saying, you know, go on the, the mission field and give up your life, though. That would be great. Don't, this is not saying you have to start an orphanage or, or live in poverty to help others, though I, I hope some of you would consider those kind of things. The example he gives of washing feet tells, and then tells them to love like that and that he'll bless them is the kind of love that he notices. Does that make sense? The God of the world notices when you do humble acts of service. I want you to think that in. Like, no one else is going to know. He notices when you're, when you're kind and you welcome people here to Waikai. He notices when you forgive someone who's undeserving. He notices when you pray for someone, even though that person might even not know, know you're praying for them. But isn't that amazing? Again, the God of the universe, there's 8 billion people in this world, and he notices when you love in humble ways. I used the illustration recently, but some of the kids at our church sometimes participate in the local Christian high school's musical. And a few years ago, one of my sons, he didn't want to do it, but he wanted to be part of the crew, but they're really short cast members because it's a small Christian school. And so they asked him, hey, can you play the dog catcher? Okay, it's one scene, one line, 10 seconds. And to just about everyone else, they probably didn't even notice him. In fact, I asked one guy from our church, I go, hey, did you see my son? He's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. Well, because it's probably because he was so good, right? He was, he was playing this dog catcher. You probably thought that was a real dog catcher. That was my son. <laughs> but as his dad, I'm waiting for that scene. Like, right, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what happens in those 10 seconds. Why? Because his role is so prominent. No, because I'm his father, and, and I love him, and I look forward to seeing what, what is he going to do. This is our God, like, noticing the little things we do because they matter to him, and the fact that we love matters to him. I mean, we, we may think praying for someone who is sick or writing an email of encouragement or blessing someone financially or forgiving is, is not really that big of a deal. But our, our Heavenly Father, He's waiting for those moments. He sees those 10-second mo- moments when you come onto the stage, noticed by no one else, and He rejoices, and importantly, He rewards. As it says in our passage, in your love, you will be blessed. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the chance to come together and consider love. Lord, and I I offer this not because the pastors have said anything about this church, and I've only felt love and experienced love when I've come. But at the same time, I'm sure there's, there's, that everyone in this room struggles at times to love others. And so, Lord, I pray that they would know the blessing of being a people who love well. And that, Lord, that, that it would be for the other people's good, but ultimately for their joy and for your glory. We thank you. We love you. Praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.